Where do the roots of comics stand in regards to other forms of media? Okay, well, comics as I see them um, really are rooted in uh, sort of technologies of reproduction. That's to say, there's a school of thought, um, I guess Scott McCloud is one of them, uh, you know, who would see comics as simply be a question of sequential uh, images. Uh, and if, if you use that definition, then you can go back to, you know, the drawings of the caveman and Egyptian hieroglyphics um, and uh, the Beirut uh, tapestry and whatnot. Um, I don't think that actually works because I think if you actually look, uh, look at where comics are, they don't really go back to the high Egyptian hieroglyphics. Like, <laughs> there's no real connection. The, the, the actual roots of comics uh, and the actual nature of comics always uh, involve uh, mass of reproduction, technologies of reproduction. So what we're talking about is print, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the age of print starting with Gutenberg. Um, and then from there, uh, what you can say is that the uh, um, age of print um, you know, allowed for the proliferation of images, uh, which David Kunzel talks about, uh, in his the various histories of comics that you know go back to the early modern times, mm, uh, but, but those aren't really comics. I mean, but, but I mean they're, 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 they are the roots of comics in the sense that these are books that have um, images and the images um, have a narrative content. But I think uh, the um, essential change that had to happen that to allow comics uh, to come into being. Um, came about during the age of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. And what you had then that was very specific was um, uh, a much easier method of reproduction with uh, lithograph uh, and also the um, an increasing sense that time um, isn't like a river that just flows, that time can be broken down into units, right? Like, for, for, for the vast majority of human history, um, time was uh, hard to break down because people just lived in time, but they didn't know how to measure time or how to... Um, um, time was just like this sort of elemental force that humans couldn't control. But once you got the ability, uh, increasingly with things like watches and clocks, to break down time, to have a division of time, to monitor how things change over time, then that allowed um, uh, this new consciousness, which um, uh, meant that uh, artists were very aware of time. And I, I think the, the, the great pivotal figure is Tofer, the Swiss artist, who did sort of the earliest sort of proto-comics um, in the early 19th century. And if you look at his work, what's really interesting is that he's interested not just in sequential images, like the way that the Beirut tapestry might be, of here's one event or here's another, and also Hogarth, people in the 18th century did this, you know, here's one event, here's another. He's interested in moments of time. Here is a man with a ball, here he's throwing the ball, here the ball is landing on someone else's uh, hands, right? Mm -hmm. So he's actually interested in this, this uh, breakdown of sequence of time. And I think that's very different. I think that's the great revolutionary moment that allowed comics as we know them come into being. Um, and I, I think in contrast, with the artists of the 18th century who did that sort of comics, they have word balloons and have human says They were really like what from one minute to the next. What they're interested in is sort of allegories of time. There's a rake trial. Here's the young, um, uh, he's corrupted by 
I guess that kind of also answers the my follow-up question that is how do comics work or do you see that as something separate um yeah i mean i think that there's you know, obviously um uh, some of what i said like well, has already been answered because obviously if i'm emphasizing the nature of um time as being a part of comics then a big part of comics is sort of you know uh sequences um in time, I think that what happened though is comics, um, as they matured, they also acquired other traits. I think that one of the things we have to be wary of is the danger of making comics seem like it's um, just like one thing mm-hmm. uh, that can be easily defined in a sentence. I mean, I think that's. Uh, I don't want to be too critical of Scott McCloud here, <laughs> but I think that that's a, that, that's a sort of danger that some theorists have fallen into that they want that one-sentence definition that defines comics and also defines what's not comics. And the idea behind that is that there's purity, right? You can define what a painting is, you can define what a novel is, so you should be able to define, you can define what a lyrical poem is, you should be able to define what a comics is. Um, But I think that that quest for purity is problematic because comics are an impure medium. You know, you already have the fact that they're an art form but they involve mass reproduction, uh, which is a kind of scandalous thing. Like, for most of history, like, um, art shouldn't involve reproduction. Art should involve the creation of something that's individual and unique. Um, but even beyond that, I think the, you know, the comics, um, uh, because they involve the uh, mixing of um, images with words, of, you know, space with time, um, uh, there's always an, an element of impurity. Uh, it's a hybrid art form. And I think what, what we can say is that there's not one thing that makes comics. Comics emerged out of this historical background that I said, of uh, print, uh, increasing awareness of time. But then there were these other elements that came into play, uh, one of which was um, the, uh, uh, the word balloons and the, the ability and the idea. Uh, and and that's actually also linked with time. Like, there were word balloons going back to at least the Middle Ages, but I think it's only in the 20th century where you had Edison and others being able to record voices that you have word balloons that actually try to mimic speech mm-hmm. rather than word balloons that try to give you a, a broad idea of what a character uh, stands for, right? So I, I think that the uh, there's a bunch of different elements that go into the making of comics, and that's why there's no pure demarcation between uh, um, things like you know, comic strips, comic books, gag cartoons, animated cartoons. 
I mean, they're, they're, they're all a little bit different, but they're all also related. They're kissing cousins. <laughs> um, and so I think, uh, I mean, yeah. So, so, so what I would want to maybe emphasize is that there's no, I mean, if, if, if we're taking a big picture, we can't say that there's, you know, any one thing that really is what makes comics um, work. I mean, I, earlier on, I emphasized sequentiality, like the, the fact that there has to, you know, comics came out of this historical moment where there's an awareness of sequence in time. But what you see, interestingly enough, in the 20th century is people that are doing single-panel strips, like for The New Yorker, or the type of stuff Ivan does. And, um, Ivan Brunetti. Yeah, so. Ivan Brunetti does. Uh, and that uh, many other artists do. And, and, and some people would say, well, that's a comics. That's like a single cartoon. But actually, if you look at these things closely, they often have the element of time in themselves because there will be the implication of something that happened in the past or maybe something that will happen. You know, if you have a man who's, like, um, on the uh, ledge of a building and he's about to jump and there's somebody making a funny comment, there's, like, the sort of part of the drama that comes from not just what's happening in that one moment, but what could happen. The man could jump or he could not jump, right? So even a single panel has time. Uh, And and I think that's... um, uh, So... Uh, so, I mean, this is perhaps roundabout and verbose. But what I'm trying to get at is that, like, when we 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 talk about comics, we're not talking about one thing. We're talking about um, a bunch of tangled roots uh, that are sort of you know interrelated and overlapping, uh, and and have shared elements. Do you see a difference between, or is there no difference between, say, strip editorial? And comic books. Uh, well, by strip editorial, you mean like sort of like. Well, I, I'm kind of giving like, uh, I mean like the, th- uh, specifically th- the three different areas. I mean, we look at mm-hmm. say like editorial cartoons, comic mm-hmm. strips like newspaper strips, and mm-hmm. ongoing comic books like Batman. Yeah. So I mean, I think that there's differences in terms of what you could call the history and sociology. There's a different audience. There's a different set of conventions. Uh, there's a different set of sort of artistic rules, but then they, they, they also overlap. And I think one way you can see the overlap is just by the fact that many of the same artists can do all three. Like Walt Kelly, you know, started, uh, well, early on he did animation, but then he later did comic books, but he also did editorial cartoons, and then he did uh, comic strip. <laughs> and so, you know, well, one could say, well, it's just a coincidence that this one guy could do all these things. But in fact, it's not a coincidence. There's a shared set of skills and a shared vocabulary. I mean, I do think there's a difference between an editorial cartoon, say, that appears in the Vancouver Sun, and uh, a comic book. But I think that there's also uh, an overlapping in terms of vocabulary uh, and in terms of um, the, the sort of like the visual language that's used. Uh, so I, 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 the, the, the differences might be defined as things of, like come out of like history and audience and um, the sort of sociology of reading rather than and content, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than like necessarily, uh, but but then there are similarities that come from the fact that they're both using this um, uh, visual language in a, for an, in a narrative context, right? Or a visual language with a narrative purpose. What do you see are the strengths of um, early comics and the flip side, weaknesses? 
so uh, by early comics, would you mean like uh, Lindsay McKay and people like that, or what? Uh, what you? What would you specify as like a good starting point of your? And I mean, Windsor is probably like a stellar example of the point where comics really were solidified. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, if you're looking at the early, well, I mean, if you look at maybe the whole period from say Pilfer to Windsor McKay as being a sort of continuum where this art form is emerging. So that's about 1850 to about 1910. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where it's like the you know you have the early pioneers and you have the language developing and you have it appearing in different forms in books magazines, and ultimately the newspapers, I think um, there's a couple of sort of strengths, and one is that the sort of strengths you get in any sort of um, period of innovation and invention, right? That uh, there's a lot of excitement there in the sense that people are doing things that are new, uh, that they haven't ever done before. Uh, and, and you see this in other art forms. I mean, you would sort of see this in the early days of um, movies or in early television, or in um, early sort of, you know, uh, jazz music, right? But, but like, there, there is something very exciting which we can still share even uh, 150 years later in watching an artist, like, trying to invent a vocabulary and, and developing their freedom. There's, there's sort of uh, a story in that. And I think also a lot of those um, 19th and early 20th century artists came out of a background of a very rich visual culture. They came, uh, and, you know, in the case of Topher, you know, knowing a lot about painting, or in the case of, you know, Windsor McKay, um, being part of this visual culture of vaudeville and of the Dime Museum. And, and so, so, so a lot of the excitement of their work comes out of the fact that they capture this very rich visual world. Um, and uh, um, so, so there's a, a, a lot in that. Um, in terms of like the weakness, I, I mean, maybe Windsor McKay is a good sort of example of this. There's, because it's a pioneering period, they're not necessarily very sure about the integration of word and picture. So they, they, what you tend to get is a lot... Uh, I don't, you don't actually see this so much in Topher, because he was an amazing early master, but certainly Windsor McKay, there's a great deal of redundancy. The, the text that he has captions in his early strips, and also... Uh, dialogue, which a lot of it simply replicates or uh, tells you things that you can see is already going on in the image. And so there wasn't a, an awareness or a sense that, you know, you can let the pictures tell the story rather than the, the um, just the words. Um, uh, I, so uh, rather than have the words also act as a commentary. Uh, I think another weakness um, for most of them, not all, um, is just in terms of writing. That the, the writing is uh, the pro the prose and the dialogue is much weaker than the um, uh, than the images that the, that you have a very strong visual culture in someone like Windsor McKay but you know he's not uh, so as gifted in terms of his dialogue or his captions um, I mean there are exceptions even to that I mean I think someone like George Sherman is equally good in both what he is you know like his uh, if you can distinguish the two between you know, like the writing, the the dialogue, uh, and the um, uh, and what he draws. Uh, but 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 in general, I would say that you know Harriman is is an exception, mm -hmm. and I think uh, well, Harriman's uh, using a whole different kind of language as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, in terms of like his dialect and 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 but I mean just the richness of language in mm -hmm. the sense of he's drawing for everything. I mean, he's a very erudite man, 
he's in his in his strips you'll see like you know all these different di- american dialects the dialect of brooklyn the dialect of the american south uh african-american dialects you know uh mexican-american dialect um and then also yiddish uh latin you know shakespeare i mean he, oh. he has a very uh rich uh verbal style uh, all in one page yeah, all in one page. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, again, I think Harriman is rare. Like, I don't think the early comic strips you see that so much. And I think in a lot of the early comic strips, the narrative is not so strong because they're just in, they were mainly Sunday pages, and the interest was to you know, you know, have this wonderful visual sequence and then maybe a punchline at the end where Little Nemo wakes up on the bed, um, and. I don't think, I mean, in the early days, uh, and you had daily strips like Mud and Jeff, but they just generally involved, like, a joke where at the end, you know, uh, Jeff kicks, kicks Mud, or Mud kicks Jeff, or one throws a, uh, a brick at the other. Uh, so, so, so it wasn't until later that you get the more sort of extended sequences. So the early comic strips also, I mean, they, a lot of them came out of vaudeville. They came out of, you know, like, you know, let's have yucks. Let's have you know, and then and the, some of the jokes are still very funny. Uh, but I mean, I think that's definitely like a, a weakness that like um, uh, they didn't have uh, have at that time the idea of an extended like narrative, which which I think came later um, in in the great story strips of the 1920s, and then later in com- in comic books and in the graphic novel. How did that those strengths and weaknesses change in time? Because I mean, we've seen I mean it's about a hundred years. Sure, media. sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you are thinking of the comic strip, I mean, in some ways, the early strips, because it's a matter of form and content in some ways, that the form that was available to someone like Windsor McKay was a large newspaper page, which is, a, and he had like these wonderful engravers that could do multi-hued colors. So for him and for others of his period, the main thing was to do something visually spectacular. And he often thought of the whole page as a unit and was very innovative in that. Um, and I think that later, as the newspaper comic strips shrank, as they appeared on smaller pages, as you know, you had many strips appearing on the same page, um, this shift, there's a shift from the visual to the narrative. So by the 19, even as early as the 1920s, you're seeing people doing stories like, you know, Little Orphan Annie or Gasoline Alley, where, um, there's a real emphasis on narrative and stories uh, because um, uh, that's what the medium allows for. Um, in in terms of, I mean, I think the comic book form also marked a sort of shift. Uh, and in the early days, there, there was a sort of a loss because the level of people drawing and writing in the comic books was much lower than in comic strips, right? Like yeah. the, the comic book, comic strips, uh, the artists, you know, were among the wealthiest Americans. They would make like you know hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars in the twenties, and they had a lot of assistance. And then they were like you know, so it attracted a lot of top talent people. The comic books were this plebeian art form. You know, they were, they were published by gangsters who you know were you made their money selling like uh, bootleg booze and uh, girly magazines and porn. Uh, and so this so the comic books were like this sort of you know like really low rent art form. Where they just took anyone off the street who looked like they could draw or write, and and then and, and they had a shop system, and everyone was low paid. So immediately in the early comic books, there was a loss of quality 
Uh, but I think that the, the energy of the people that came in changed that dynamic where you eventually you get these people like Eisner and Kirby and Karl Barks and John Stanley who had a real craftsman sensibility and even though they know, you know, they aren't getting artistic recognition and they're not getting paid a lot of money, they're still like able to craft stories and because they're working in comic books rather than comic strips, they're able to, you know, do a story from beginning to end, right? Like if you're reading Orphan Annie in the newspapers, you're reading a long sequence that could take a year to do. But in, in the uh, comic book, Karl Barks could do like a you know, 30-page story that you can read from start to finish. And that changes the dynamics. And also the sense that you know, you're not just doing three or four panels plus a Sunday page, uh, three or four panels a day, plus you know, maybe a little bit more on the Sunday, you're having the chance to do like um, a 30-page story, and each page is a unit. So I think with the comic books, you get a return to the idea of the page as a unit. And you see that in everyone who had skill, in Kurtzman, Harvey Kurtzman, Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, Karl Barks. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, the other constraint of the comic books was that they were really aimed, uh, a lot of them at kids or teenagers, or, you know, maybe sort of um, uh, mentally limited adults. Uh, and <laughs> 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 no, I mean, that, that, that was a target audience, right? Yeah. Like, uh, uh, whereas, whereas newspaper comics were, like, aimed at, you know, they were family entertainment. They are aimed at everybody, including adults. Um, but, I mean, I think, so in that sense, the comics books also represented a limitation. And it was only, like, with the sort of rise of the underground comics in the late 60s that you got a sense that comic books could be for adults and could have satire and but I mean and even in the early undergrounds I mean they're very the, the, they're geared towards sensationalism and uh, shocking people and they're made for adults but I mean it's very much a sort of you know uh, adolescent or sensibility of you know like we'll, we'll have the most shocking image of you know rape and pirates and whatnot um, S. Clay Wilson uh, and it's only, only with the, the you know the sort of literary uh, the alternative comics in the 80s, the people like Spiegelman uh, and the Hernandez brothers, um, that you really, you know, for the first time had like an attempt to do sort of long form comic narratives aimed at adults. Um, I guess I, I mean, I, I could throw in like, the, the, there are earlier examples we could throw in like Will Eisner and Justin Spike, Green. But, yeah, yeah, Justin Green, yeah, yeah. But, but, but in any case, so I think that that's the sort of the, 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 the long narrative arc of the history of comics. <laughs> now, I've got a couple just like um, points in time where there's been media attention on comics. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, uh, how did uh, Wortham's work change the development in comics? Okay, um, no, that's an interesting sort of question. Um, I mean, the early comic books, as I mentioned, um, you know, where they're sort of plebeian art form, you know, very disrep- uh, uh, disreputable, but they had a huge audience. I mean, virtually every kid in America and Canada was reading them. Um, I mean, where them definitely had uh, an impact, just in the sense that he was the first person to write a book on comic books, right? Yeah. Like, like in that sense, he's like a pioneer. Uh, and uh, he also, you know, raised um, in his own way, the issue, uh, you know, the issue of what the impact of the media might be, uh, and he he took a very sort of you know negative view towards the medium, 
seeing, you know, not just the contents of the medium, but the medium itself. Like he thought that the the printing, the the style of art, the the use of words and pictures in that way is all like um, that. But I mean, he, he, even though he had this negative view, like I think it's interesting that he raised the issue of the nature of the medium. Um, I think, he, I mean, it's hard to know what the impact of his work is, just in the sense that he wasn't the first one to criticize comic books. Um, there were, um, you know, anti-comic movements going back um, I mean, to the early days of the comic strips. There were people who thought the Cats and Jammer kids were, you know, bad influence on kids. And, and you, so, so throughout the history of comics, you've had this critique. I mean, and I think he articulated the, the critique but um, in a powerful way, and that has an influence. But I don't think he should be singled out. Like I, I'm not, I'm against sort of great man theory of history yeah. to say, you know, well, if Worthen wasn't there, things would have been different. Because if you actually look at it, you know, even from the first earliest days of Superman, there were people in newspapers criticizing comic books as being bad for kids. Um, and in, by the late '40s, even before Worthen got into it, you had the movement against crime comic books. I mean, in Canada. The yeah, crime comic books were banned in like 1947 or 1948, so that was well before Wyndham wrote his uh, book uh, *Seduction of the Innocent*. Um, so I think Wyndham, in some ways, was the figurehead, or he was the the leader of this movement. But the movement would have happened without him, and I think the movement, in a lot of ways, was inevitable, um, just because you had uh, people who were. Um, selling stuff to kids that at that time wasn't socially acceptable, right? Like, peop- um, in general, um, parents can control what their kids could, like, wa- uh, see and watch, right? Like, yeah. if they're in the home, you know, they can know what they're listening to on the radio or watching on TV or what books they're bringing. But comic books were, like, this form that liberated kids. Like, if you had 10 cents, which everyone could have, right? Like, if you had 10 cents, <laughs> you could buy a comic book, or you could borrow a comic book from one of your friends. And so this is a comic book that gave kids what they wanted. And unfortunately, what kids wanted was stuff that their parents didn't want them to have, uh, which is a you know, time-honored story. So, so, so in some ways, the battle over comic, comic books you know, seems almost inevitable. That, you know, the comic book industry thrived on you know, all this sort of sexy, violent stuff um, uh, at a period in... in you know, history in not in the United States, in Canada, but also in Europe and in Japan and in Mexico, where you know people wanted more control over what um, their kids uh, wanted. So, uh, in, in that sense, where them is more like a symptom of this of this like um, issue of of the battle between parents and their kids, He's, rather than the uh, the cause. Okay. Yeah. Um. Does that make sense? I, I don't it know d- it does. It does. Yeah. The other uh, kind of media thing, and I'm being specific in like kind of greater media instead of oh, like. I, actually, can we just go back to the Wyndham thing? Because yeah, if yeah. you're doing this as a media thing, I should mention that Wyndham's influence was a bit mitigated by the fact that he his arguments weren't scientifically sound and they were rejected by his own profession. <laughs> That's to say, the vast majority of people, there were a lot, other than Wyrdham, there were many other psychiatrists and people in education who were studying comics in the 30s and 40s and 50s. If you, if you look in the bibliography of some scholarly books, you can find literally, like, you know, um, 
uh, scores of articles in academic journals about, you know, like, what are the impact of comic books. And the vast majority of scholars, uh, psychiatrists and um, uh, specialists in education, came to the conclusion that comic books had, you know, no impact whatsoever. Like, in the sense that um, the child's background, you know, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're abused by their parents or not abused, has a much greater influence than, you know, whether they're reading comics or not. Um, so so that, that was the, the consensus view. And the consensus view in media studies, which was sort of sort of emerging, right, in the yeah. 40s and 50s, is that there was the, the idea of, you know, like, that media effect is ne- negligible, that the, the people are influenced by what's around them more than what they read or what they see. Uh, and the, the reason people came to that conclusion was that they did sort of social scientific tests where they tried to control the evidence, control for varying factors. So instead of just looking at a random group of kids, or instead of looking at, like, you know, a bunch of kids who are in jail for juvenile delinquency and finding out whether they read comics, they looked at, like, you know, a random selection of kids, rich and poor, um, uh, you know, bl- black and white from all over the country and tried to isolate factors. And what, what they found when you control like that is that, you know, comic books can't be connected with antisocial behavior. Now, Wortham had a very different methodology because he was a clinical practitioner. So he, he ran a clinic, right? Yeah. And he was in, in Harlem, and he, you know, he was very concerned with issues of poverty and discrimination, and then he had clients, kids, who were, you know, um, damaged or had problems, and he's trying to help them, and he noticed that, well, they were all reading comics, and so he sort of jumped to the conclusion that comics were a contributing factor to what was happening, but, but I mean, that's very much a clinical way of looking at it. That's the way someone who is, you know, narrowly focused on the um, end result might look at it, but people were looking at it from a more broader perspective and using the methodology of social sciences, uh, came to the exact opposite conclusion. So one of the paradoxes of Wertham is that even though he had a historical effect in, you know, raising the alarm about comics and it possibly, uh, although he didn't approve of the comics code, of leading to the events that led to the comics code, um, uh, scientifically his work has not had an impact and has sort of, uh, and that's sort of one reason why we've never seen a replication of Wertham in like in subsequent debates like over uh whether it's over comics or movies or video games um the sort of Wertham point of view has really been marginalized mm-hmm. yeah so so i i mean again i'm sorry for <laughs> that no, 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 fine. for what you need but i i think that like it's important to uh if you're, if you're thinking about this as a medium to understand uh yeah the, the debate about that the Muhammad comics controversy and mm-hmm. of lack of a better term um yeah. I know it's kind of a headache for some people just thinking about it yeah uh, um and I, and I don't want to worry too much about the this the specifics of what happened but more in the um is it an isolated incident or is it part of a greater scope of the medium um, yeah, I don't think it's an isolated incident because, as I mentioned, there have been sort of scandals about comics from the earliest days of comics. Um, and I think that one way to sort of conceptualize it is um, to maybe think about why the visual 
is more inherently shocking than um, other forms of representation. Uh, that's to say, although, I mean, obviously, uh, people were upset over Salman Rushdie as well, so people can be upset over novels. But I think if you, if you take the broader view of history, um, things that are visual are much more likely um, to incite uh, uh, these sort of censorship debates. Um, and I think part of it, I mean, uh, I mean, the best discussion of the whole controversy was, I, I thought, Art Spiegelman's discussion in Harper's. And I think that the point that uh, Art made uh, is partially about the nature of sort of icons and the sort of um, tradition of resistance to icons. Uh, I mean, within it's not completely um, within all forms of Islam. There, there are forms of Islam that have varying attitudes towards um, images, and then some of them are very anti-representational, and others are more open to representation. But I mean, I mean and certainly in other religious traditions as well, in both Judaism and Christianity, there have been periods uh, where there's been a sort of um, a various sects or factions that have destroyed would icons or destroyed images. Would this uh, be would this be relative to say Reformation era iconoclasm? Uh, the, that's a one example of the Puritans and the sort of uh, destroying of icons, as seeing them as being part of Catholicism. But even earlier than that, in Byzantium, there was uh, uh, um, uh, during uh, the period of Byzantium, um, Eastern Christianity in Byzantium, they had an anti-iconic uh, um, movement uh, during the um, Middle Ages. Uh, and and more, more deeply, I mean, I think uh, within all the sort of monotheistic religions, there's the idea of the graven image, right? I mean, yeah. that's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take graven images. <laughs> and so all of them implicitly have this idea that, you know, God is sacred, God cannot be seen, right? That, you know, this is the pivotal story that is in um, uh, the Hebrew Bible, but which is, uh, you know, agreed to by Christians and Muslims and Jews, which is, you know, like, like um, Moses could not see God, right? Moses could only see the backside of God. You cannot see God, right? So you cannot represent God. Uh, and so, so, so within the sort of uh, what you could call all the Abrahamic tradition, the monotheistic yeah. religions, there's a very strong resistance to uh, images, especially of the sacred. And I think that in some ways that's partially at the root of the Muhammad controversy. Uh, but I mean, and more generally, I think the resistance to images comes from the fact that images can speak much quicker and to a much broader audiences than words can, right? That, that if you have, you know, like the Muhammad cartoons could be seen by everyone, and even though they could interpret them differently, people could, you know, people from a vast range of backgrounds could get the gist of them, right? So, so in some ways, they're very different from, like, um, uh, you know, like a book or uh, uh, where you have to take the time to read and not everyone can read. So, so, so there, there's a sense in which the, the visual is always problematic, and then the visual is always open to controversy uh, in a way that, like, more abstract forms of representation aren't, right? Yeah. So I, I think that there's, like, perhaps if you could draw a spectrum between, like, sort of, you know, visual representation, cartoons at one end, and uh, things that are more abstract, whether it's music or maybe even abstract art, right? Like, which is visual, but which is not representational. Uh, people, you know, get 
some people don't like, you know, very abstract paintings. They don't like Jackson Pollock. But I don't think there's the same impulse to destroy Jackson Pollock as there might be to destroy, <laughs> like, if you did, um, uh, someone did a caricature of, of you that you didn't like. You know? yeah. so there's a way in which the visual is much more intimate and personal and direct. So, so, so um, well, this is all to say that, yeah, I think the Muhammad controversy is not just about the sort of, you know, whatever um, specific religious, political things were at issue, but also it has something to do with the nature of the medium itself. And also, I mean, now with technology, right, because they appeared in this Danish newspaper, but then they were on the Internet, and people could, like, take copies and take them to Saudi Arabia, and then people were getting up, you know. So so, so there's a way in which, like, sort of the media, the the sort of easy um, ability to reproduce images, which is part of comics as well, um, played a role in us. 